This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au As we fast, we come face to face with our hunger. And hunger is a really basic human desire, isn't it? We all have basic human needs that keep us alive. We need food, we need water, we need clothing, we need sleep. And when we go without any of these things, when our needs are not met, our bodies let us know. So if you don't eat, what happens? You get hungry. If you don't drink, you get thirsty. If you don't sleep, you get tired. If you go to the snow in your swimmers, you're going to get cold. Our hunger actually keeps us alive. It's our body's alarm system to let us know that we need something. But I think for most of us, we don't normally go without food for so long that we experience real hunger pains. For me, I eat my breakfast with the kids in the morning, wheat bix, muesli, fruit every day. And then at nine o'clock, my tummy's already rumbling and I'm going back to the kitchen to get some toast or a piece of fruit. Our executive pastor this week, James Dawson, he was telling me a story about when he went to South Africa to visit his wife, Callan's family. And they were visiting Callan's auntie and Dawson was getting a bit peckish. And so he asked Callan's auntie, when's dinner going to be ready? And she turned to him, James, when have you ever experienced real hunger? I was like, well, but that, what a question, like, When have we ever experienced real hunger? When have you ever experienced real hunger? I think the closest that I came was uh, back in 2019, I did a 300-kilometer bikepacking trip uh, from Canberra up to the Southern Highlands. And I think there's... Oh, we don't have the screen. Do we have the screen? No screen. We got it, we got it. That's me and some of the the guys climbing through um, the Talaganda National Park. So we were winding our way through national parks and backcountry New South Wales. And on the second day, we, we rode 120 kilometres and it was a really gruelling day. For most of the day, we were, we were riding along sandy fire trails. And if you've ever ridden on sand, you know that you can't really get any momentum up. You're always working and kind of slipping around on the sand. So it was a really hard day. I snapped my chain climbing up one of the, uh, the steep climbs that we did. And we were still riding at 8 o'clock that night. And we were just starting to get into North Nowra, where we were camping that night. And if you've been to North Nowra, you know that there's a steady climb up Illuru Road for a few kilometres. And I just hit the wall. My energy reserves were depleted and my body just started to crash. And I think it was one of the first times in my life that I'd kind of experienced kind of real hunger and depletion. But I think in our ordinary lives, we don't normally go long enough without food to experience real hunger pains in our stomach. But we do all experience real hunger pains in our hearts. I think that hunger is a rich metaphor for our human experience of desire. We all have deep hungers within us, deep desires within us for acceptance and approval, for for purpose, for significance. And these deep hungers, they drive our choices and behaviours. Our hearts are hungry and so we eat at the table of Instagram. Our hearts are hungry and so we eat at the table of pornography. 
Our hearts are hungry and so we eat at the table of academic success or career advancement or relationship status. We eat but we're never filled. We're never satisfied. And we're left with a question. Where can we eat and be filled? Where can we find bread that lasts? Where can we find true and lasting satisfaction for the hungers that we find within us? And that's the question that we're looking at today as we look at Jesus feeding a hungry, hungry crowd, as Jesus feeds the 5,000 people, which interestingly, I only found out this out this week, it's the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. So it's pretty significant for the Gospel writers if all of them recorded it. And as we look at this incredible miracle, we're going to see that Jesus feeds hungry hearts, that Jesus offers us bread that lasts, a true and lasting satisfaction for the hungers of our hearts. So that's where we're going, but I'm very aware of my need for prayer and of our need to to pray um, as we come to God's Word. So please pray with me, and then we're going to work through the text together. Let's pray. Dear Father, I remember your words to Ezekiel where you told him to eat this book, to fill yourself with it, and he ate it. He ate your word and it was sweeter than honey. And so today as we consider your word, I ask that you would feed us, that this would be a feast, that you would fill us with truth about you, with good news today, that it would be sweet as honey for our souls and that we would leave this feast fully satisfied in Jesus. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to work through the text together. John chapter 6, if you've got your phones out or it'll be on the screen, starting in verse 1. Here we go. John chapter 6, verse 1. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him. Because, why did they follow him? Because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, I want you guys to do some work with me as we imagine this scene. I want you to kind of imagine yourself back into first century Galilee, which is going to require some work on your part. I want to set the scene for us. So, I've got a map on the screen. Jesus did most of his ministry around Capernaum, kind of at the top of the Sea of Galilee there. In this scene, we see him rowing in a boat with his disciples across to the eastern side of the lake uh, to a place near Bethsaida. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is about 13 kilometres wide, and so maybe they've rowed six to eight kilometres from Capernaum across to the east side. On that east side of the lake is the Golan Heights in present-day Syria, And you'll see a photo of that region up on the screen now. It it slopes down pretty steeply from the Golan Heights down to the Sea of Galilee, which is 200 metres below sea level. It's the world's second lowest lake um, after the Dead Sea. So this is where they are. They're in this region on this hillside sloping down to the sea. And verse 4 tells us that the Passover festival was near. Now, John records this, not just as a passing comment, not just to tell us that it was springtime and the grass was green and that's the time of year that it is. He puts in this seemingly passing comment to provide deep theological underpinning and background for everything that's going to happen in the narrative ahead. And so, it makes us ask, well, what, what, 
what is it? What is the Jewish Passover? Well, the Passover meal is a meal eaten every year, even to this day by the Jewish people, in remembrance of God's great rescue of His people out of slavery in Egypt. It recalls the sacrifice of a lamb and the blood on the doorpost to protect the people. It recalls God rescuing His people through the water to bring them out of Egypt. It recalls God's provision of bread in the wilderness, of manna in the wilderness to feed His people. And it recalls God bringing His people into the promised land to give them life. John records that it's the Passover festival because he wants us to be aware of this background. He wants us to have this story in our minds as we're reading about Jesus feeding the crowd. He wants us to remember Israel's great story of a rescuer, of God's great provision of bread from heaven, of God's promise of life in the land. And so a great crowd has followed Jesus. They've seen his miracles, healing the sick, teaching with authority, and they've walked, presumably, about 10 kilometres around that north side of the lake. John records that there's 5,000 men in the crowd, and so if we add in the women and children, most commentators think that maybe there's 10 to 20,000 people on this hillside gathering to follow Jesus. You know, it's like being at Leichhardt Oval to watch the footy. You know, it's thousands of people walking from all the surrounding towns out into the wilderness to try and catch a glimpse of Jesus. They're wanting to experience a miracle for themselves. Now, this is the part where I want you to imagine that you are there. Imagine that you are there, part of that crowd. You've heard about this miracle worker. He might have healed one of your friends or neighbours. You've heard that he's teaching with authority and authenticity, that he's promising to restore the kingdom of God. You want to see him for yourself. Maybe you've got a sick child or a sick relative that you're bringing along with you, hoping for a miracle. Most of this crowd are peasant farmers. It was an agrarian society. You live off the land. You live off what you've literally grown with your own hands. There are people that are oppressed by the Romans. They're heavily taxed by the Romans. uh, And bread was their staple food. You know, for us, bread is kind of a side kind of dish. But for them, that's the main thing that they ate. And poor people at that time, they literally went without food. It was not uncommon for a poor person not to eat. They knew what it was like to be hungry. Can you picture yourself there on the hillside, a poor first century peasant farmer with sick relatives? You've walked around the north side of the lake. You're tired. You're hungry. You've been sitting in the sun listening to Jesus teach. Let's see what he does. Jesus sees the crowd He sees their hunger and he responds with compassion. He's moved to action. He knows what he's going to do. But before he does that, the first thing that he wants to do is test his disciples. He has a test for Philip the planner and Andrew the pragmatist. So Philip the planner first in verse 5. Jesus asks Philip this, Where shall we buy bread for all of these people to eat? Now, it's not surprising that Philip... Jesus has asked Philip. Philip was a local of Bethsaida, just around the corner, so presumably he knew all the local cafes and cheap eats. He was the right person to ask to get where food. Um, But Philip's like, verse 7, he says this. You can already see his brain starting to work, doing some calculations. He's like, Jesus, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one just to have a bite. Philip, the planner. And I, I imagine that if I was in this story, I'd be like Philip doing all these mental calculations. Half a year's wages. So the Greek word there 
is actually 200 denarii. So 200 denarii, a denarii is one day's wage. So 200 days wages uh, for a labourer. And if you think of that in today's money, you know, minimum wage is about $150 a day. So 200 days wages, that's about $30,000. We've got 15,000 people or so on the hillside, that's about $2 a head. Even if we had that kind of money, that's, you're not going to get much food for $2 a head. Jesus, what are you thinking? We can't provide bread for this huge crowd. We don't have that kind of money. And think about the logistics. It'd be absolutely impossible catering for a crowd of 15,000 people. It's not going to happen. Just send them all away into Bethsaida. They can buy all their own food. You can hear Philip's brain ticking and doing all the calculations and planning. Jesus wants to test Philip, the planner. But he also wants to test Andrew, the pragmatist. So Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. He's a fisherman. He's a trader. He gets stuff done. He's like, here you go, Jesus. Look, I found this little boy. He's brought his lunch, five barley loaves and two small fish. Now, a barley loaf, don't think like a big family loaf from Burke Street Bakery. This is like tuna and crackers. He's brought his little barley cakes. He's brought his little lunchbox. And Andrew's like, here you go, Jesus. This guy's got his lunch. What can we do with that? That's not going to go very far. So both Philip, the planner, and Andrew, the pragmatist, both come up with the same diagnosis, that this is impossible. There's no way that we're going to be able to feed this whole crowd, Jesus. What the heck are you thinking? But Jesus wants to test them. Jesus has a lesson for them. Jesus doesn't just want to feed the hungry crowd. Jesus wants to test and teach his apprentices. How often do you find yourself in the shoes of Philip the planner or Andrew the pragmatist when you're faced with a problem? You're trying to plan your way out of it or trying to fix something. And so often we can miss what God wants to do in it. God's people throughout Scripture, they're often critiqued for looking to their own ingenuity, their own resources and neglecting God's help. I think of Isaiah 31, which will be on the screen, Isaiah 31 verse 1, where the prophet says this to the people of Israel, he says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on their own resources, on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But, what's the problem? But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. I wonder, just like Jesus wants to test Philip and test Andrew as they're faced with this impossible situation, I wonder if Jesus wants to put us through the same test today. What challenges are you facing in your life today? What difficulties are you facing that seem impossible to fix? When I'm faced with a problem, I get into problem-solving mode. I make a plan, I execute, I make things happen, I muster all my human resources to find solutions. But for me, how does Jesus want to test me? Well, maybe Jesus is teaching me to turn my problems to God in prayer, to seek God's help rather than trying to solve all the problems myself. How about you? In this narrative, we see that Jesus doesn't just want to feed the hungry crowd, we're going to get there. But Jesus wants to test and teach his disciples. And I wonder, what test does he have for you today? Well, 
he does want to feed the hungry crowd. Let's have a look what happens in verse 10. Jesus says, after they've already exhausted all of Philip's plans and Andrew's solutions, Jesus has a plan. Jesus says, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place and they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. And then you add in all the women and children, we're talking 10 to 20,000 people. Then Jesus took the loaves, he gave thanks and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. And he did the same with the fish. Everyone had something to eat that day. Remember, we're talking about tuna and crackers here, multiplied to feed a crowd of 20,000 people. An incredible miracle. Now, skeptics like me, we, we doubt this miracle, don't we? In, some interpreters actually think that this is a parable about sharing. They say, oh, well, actually what happened, the, the miracle didn't happen. What really happened? Well, everyone, most people brought their lunch that day. Some people didn't, but no one was willing to share it. And Jesus brings forward this little boy who's willing to share his lunch and inspired by his example, well, all the crowd begin to share their food and there's more than enough food for everyone to eat. They take this as a moral story about sharing. And we can rationally make sense of how that would happen, can't we? But the problem is that's not what John or any of the other gospel writers say happened. They say, here's this one boy's lunchbox and Jesus used those small human resources to feed 15, 20,000 people. It's impossible. There's no way for us to rationalise it. It's not mathematically possible or solvable. It is a miracle, a supernatural, extraordinary miracle. And as sceptics, we, we struggle with the idea of the supernatural. We struggle with the idea of the miraculous, the unexplainable. And if we believe that nature is all that there is, that all that exists is matter, then miracles are very problematic because they seem to break the laws of nature. But the thing is, not even hardcore secular materialists actually believe that matter is all there is. Secular parents at my kids' school are more than happy to send their kids to secular ethics class. They're more than happy to hold humanist values of equality and freedom. They're more than happy to trust in the scientific method or experience love. None of those things are provable by matter. None of, all of them are immaterial and unprovable. I want you to imagine with me the possibility, just a thought experiment, that God does exist. I'm not saying he does, but just imagine with me as a thought experiment that God does exist. A God who made the natural world, who sits outside of it, who constantly upholds it, who claims to have stepped into the world to, so that we can know him. If, it should, if that is the case, then it shouldn't surprise us at all that the one who spoke the stars into existence can feed a few thousand people. That's small fry for the God who made literally everything. Now, none of that actually proves the existence of God, and that's a much bigger conversation that we would love to have with you. All of it's to say that miracles, if we imagine that matter isn't all that there is, miracles become slightly less problematic for us. And John and all of the Gospel writers, they're clear that this is a miracle. Jesus feeds a hungry crowd of 15,000 people from just one boy's lunch. 
And the result is that everyone feasted. Everyone had as much as they wanted to eat. And there were even leftovers. Have a look at verse 12. When everyone had had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled. How how many baskets did they fill? They filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. See, when Jesus is on dinner, he provides a feast. There's more than enough to eat and no one goes hungry. Jesus offers us abundant provision, feasting at his table. Now, of course, as the crowd received this bread miraculously, they've got the Passover story in their minds, don't they? They're attuned to the Old Testament illusion of Moses providing manna from heaven. And what do they conclude in verse 14? They say, this is the prophet who is coming into the world. This is him. And of course, they're remembering Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and you must listen to him. They're concluding, because they've received their own version of manna from heaven. Here is a prophet like Moses who teaches God's word on the mountain with authority, who feeds the people miraculously with bread, who promises to bring us into life in the kingdom. Now, of course, Jesus can see what's happening. He can see the fervor of the crowd. And in verse 15, what does he do? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, because the people will see that this promised prophet is actually also the promised king. Knowing that they intended to make him king by force, he withdrew. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus can see the crowd starting to swell with messianic fervor. 5,000 men a potential revolutionary army who's ready to overthrow the Romans. But this is not the nature of Jesus' kingship. Jesus has not come to overthrow Rome or restore a national geographical Israel by force. No, Jesus has come to bring a new exodus, a new rescue for God's people from deliverance from slavery to sin, which requires the blood of a new Passover lamb, No, raising up an army is not the way that Jesus will bring his kingdom and so he withdraws to the mountain by himself. And the crowd are left searching. Where's he gone? Where's he gone? We fast forward through John's John's narrative later in chapter 6. The crowds have been searching for Jesus and they end up finding him back in Capernaum. Back in Capernaum, teaching in the synagogue, back on the other side of the lake. And Jesus says to them this, because they're searching for them in verse 26. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but why? Because you ate the loaves and had your fill. The people had eaten and they were satisfied and now they're back for more. I wonder when was the last time you had an eating experience that left you wanting to go back, we've got to go back to that place. A few weeks ago, our staff team, when it had dumplings in Ashfield, dirty Ashfield dumplings. And Uncle James Wong was the the master of the menu and ordered noodles and dumplings and the table was overflowing. I think we only played 
paid $3 a head. Maybe they should have gone for dumplings that day. Um, and we were all like, oh, this is amazing. We ate our food, ordered, ordered more dumplings, and we're like, oh, I can't wait to go back to Ashfield to Shanghai Night for dumplings. Jesus offers us a greater satisfaction than food that fills our stomach. In verse 27, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Do not work for food that spoils. Jesus knows the futility of our human experience. He knows the futility of food that spoils. We eat our brekkie, we get hungry again. We do our groceries, we fill our fridge. Where did it all go? We go back to the shops and do it again. We buy our food, we don't eat it, it gets mouldy. We've got to chuck it out and do it again. We go to sleep, we wake up, and then what happens at the end of the day? We've got to sleep again. We go to work, we have a weekend. It's Monday tomorrow. We've got to go to work again. Food that spoils, restless, endless toil with, at the best, temporary satisfaction. Jesus knows the futility of our human experience and he offers us something better. Jesus says that he offers us not food that spoils but food that endures to eternal life a satisfaction that doesn't fade away. You can imagine the crowd going, where, 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 where can I find this bread that lasts? We're desperate for it, Jesus. Feed us. Where is it? And he says this in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. What's that, Jesus? Where can we find this bread that lasts? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Are you sick of food that spoils? Where can we find bread that lasts? Let me read it again. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will be hungry tomorrow. No. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Of course, the bread that Jesus offers isn't bread at all. The bread that Jesus offers is himself. He recalls the Passover story of God providing manna from heaven, and he says, I am the true manna that came down from heaven to feed the world. He recalls the blood of the lamb shed to rescue the people out of slavery in Egypt. And he says, I am the Passover lamb whose blood will be shed to rescue God's people from slavery to sin. As bread is broken, as wine is poured to feed our bodies, Jesus' body will be broken and his blood shed to feed our souls. Where can we find this bread, Jesus? How can we receive it? Well, he says, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, that's all we've got to do. It's simple. All we've got to do is come to him. All we've got to do is trust him. All we've got to do is open our hands, open our empty hands, 
open our empty hearts and ask Him to feed us. I can imagine that as Jesus is teaching the crowd, He has in His mind Isaiah 55, which there's just such beautiful echoes between Jesus' words and this, this promise from God in Isaiah 55. Isaiah says this, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labour on that which does not satisfy. You can imagine Jesus reinterpreting that as, why spend money on food that spoils? Why are you looking to that? Listen to me. Eat what is good. Eat what... Do you want a feast? Do you want to eat what is good? Where can we find it? Your soul will delight in the richest affair. Just like Jesus fed the crowd with physical bread that day that filled their stomachs, as the bread of life, Jesus promises to feed the hungers of our hearts. He gives us bread of life without payment. It's a free gift of life in God's kingdom that starts today and goes on forever. Jesus offers us abundance. He offers us a feast at his table, a life that truly satisfies our deepest hungers. And we're reminded, of course, aren't we, that Lent is not just a season of fasting, but it's a fasting that becomes a feast. And today on the Lord's Day, we enter into this feast that Jesus invites us into, a life of abundance, a life of feasting at God's table. Is this what you want? Do you have a hungry heart? Are you disillusioned with what you've tasted in the world? Are you tired of working tirelessly for food that spoils? Do you want to enter the banquet of the Father where your soul will delight on the richest of fare? That's Jesus' invitation for all of us today. All we have to do is to come to him, to open our hands ready to receive him. And that invitation goes out to all of us today. Well, as we close, I wanted to read you a poem, a prayer that was written by someone in one of the gospel communities that we've led that I think gives a beautiful snapshot of what it looks like to taste and see that God is good, to to taste the bread of life, to have your soul filled and the beautiful joy that that brings to you. So this is a poem and a prayer from Jess, that I hope stirs your heart also to come to Jesus with open hands to receive the bread of life and for us to share that together as a community around the table. Jess writes this prayer. I know this was all from you because I did not expect and I did not seek, was not a desire of my heart, but you gave me a taste when I didn't think I was hungry. You showed us the flavours of eating together in your name. I think, God, you should be on dinner every week. You surprised us by joy, surprised by the joy of togetherness, of being side by side by the fire. You urged us to share our burdens, love the unlovely, give up our comforts, reveal our idols, to love the city and to speak the gospel. You are teaching us to give, to give our riches, our time, our voices and our lives just 
as you so humbly gave for us. This won't always be a dream where we're living, just a taste before the banquet. It won't always be the smoke of the fire or just the beat of the dance. It will be the kingdom. This is Jesus' invitation for you today to come to his table, to eat the bread of life, to taste the life that truly satisfies. And my hope and my prayer is that you will come to him with open hands, with an empty heart, that your hungers might be fulfilled and satisfied in him.